Good morning, family. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the second letter of Timothy, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. If you are using a pew Bible, that can be found on page 1,269. 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. We're going to spend our time together discussing the title of today's message, The Time Has Come. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. A handful of years ago, there was a young man looking to plant a church. And at the time, he was an elder in his family's home church. And he started to see writings on the wall that the church was heading down a dangerous and very unbiblical path. He fought for the church to stand on truth, to stand on scripture, but he was only met with silence, anger, and often hostility. And from that experience, he felt the desire to step into the darkness of his hometown, proclaim God's word, and hold fast to its truth. After much prayer and discussions with his wife, he made the decision to pursue that desire. So he stepped down as an elder in his church and began his journey as a pastor church planner. He believed that one of the best places to start the journey would be to sit down with other pastors in the area that seemed to be successful in ministry, to gain wisdom on what it meant to start a church and to care well for a flock. He made a mental list, a short one indeed, of the men that he wanted to talk to regarding those goals. The one and only meeting he had was with a well-known pastor and upon arrival to the church, the pastor began showing the young men around his facility. As they walked along, the pastor began bragging about uh, the number of people that were attending, the number of baptisms that they do, how great their media team is, how great their worship team is, how cool their youth room was. And he went on and on, beaming as he described every physical aspect of their facility and their plans for the future. When they finally arrived at the pastor's office, the young man sat across from that pastor as the pastor took his seat behind his desk. What do you want to know? 
the pastor asked. The first question on the young man's mind was one that he wanted to make sure he got right when planning his church. How do you disciple your people? The pastor seemed taken back a bit by the question. He danced around it a little bit, never really getting to the answer. The young man asked again, when it comes to your congregation and leadership, how do you disciple them? The pastor yet again was vague in his response, never really answering the question. In his persistence, the young man asked a third time, how do you disciple your people? The pastor, visibly agitated, forced a smile, held up his Bible, and stated firmly, they have the same access to God's word as I do. I don't need to hold their hand. This story, friends, is a part of my story. I was that young man, and to say I was stunned would be an understatement. I don't know what I said in response to that. I don't recall much of the meaning after that. I know I didn't stay long. And all these years later, that well-known local pastor is on a stage this very day proclaiming a false gospel that is sadly leading many astray. Merriam-Webster defines the idiom, the time has come as this. It is the right moment to do something or for something to happen. The right moment for something to happen. When Pastor Darren asked me to fill the pulpit this morning, I was honored to accept the invitation. And there was only one text that came to my mind to preach, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. For you see, Paul warns his young protege in the ministry, Timothy, that there will be a time coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Church, I would argue that that time has come. So what do we do? We turn to Scripture. And today we're going to look at three points that can be drawn from the text. Point number one, the serious charge. The serious charge. Found in verses one through two, where Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, states, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. I like the King James Version when it comes to verse 1 where it says, I charge thee therefore. I believe that to be a more accurate translation of the text. Whether your version says that or not, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is tying verses 1 through 5 directly to what he stated in verse uh, 16 through 17 in chapter 3. Really, one can argue that chapter 4 is the turning point in Paul's letter to Timothy. You see, Timothy is a young pastor in a church at Ephesus at the time of this writing. And the church is under immense persecution. 2 Timothy and 1 Peter were written around the same time where the Roman Emperor Nero was persecuting Christians. And because of that persecution, uh, many were defecting from the faith. And so was the case in Ephesus. So Paul spends significant time giving words of encouragement to Timothy. 
reminding Timothy of his gift of preaching, strengthening Timothy, warning Timothy of the persecution to come and of the false teachers in the Ephesian church. Let's look at a couple of these examples. If you will, turn to the first chapter of 2 Timothy. And in verse 5, we see Paul telling Timothy, remember your faith. Remember your faith. In verse 5, Paul says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Remember your faith, Timothy. Remember how it is passed on from generation to generation, how strong that faith was. And I am sure, Timothy, that it still resides within you. Secondly, he reminds Timothy of his gift in verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flames the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. The implication there is you need to exercise your gift, study, to preach. He's implying here that there is a dying of the flame within Timothy to preach the word of God. Remember your gift, Timothy. In verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1, Timothy is reminded to follow sound teaching and to guard truth. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit that is entrusted to you. And then in chapter 2 and verse 1, Timothy is reminded to remain strong. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 8, Timothy is to remember Christ, where Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. And the list could go on and on and on. You get this sense of a battle-worn pastor in the midst of a hostile community, trying to remain faithful to his church. Paul then concludes this line of thought in chapter 3, verses 16 through 17 that I alluded to earlier, where he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Based on the foundation of the sufficiency of Scripture, Timothy, I charge you, the Greek word that Paul used for charge carries the idea of giving a forceful order or directive. As Paul begins to pin this uh, part of the letter, my sanctified imagination wonders if the Holy Spirit was bringing to Paul's mind his second letter to the church in Corinth that he wrote some 10 years prior. You see, the church in Corinth was a mess. And for the sake of time, I would just say that the Ephesian church looked like child's play compared to what the Corinthian church was going through. So he wrote his first letter to the church. Many repented. And so Paul pins his second letter to the church to encourage them to deal with other false apostles. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, God states this through Paul. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us to triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? 
For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. The church in Corinth was continually under the attack of false teaching. And God, through Paul, called them peddlers. It's the only time in the entire Bible that this word is used. And it means to make money by selling anything, to get sordid gain by dealing in anything, to do a thing for base gain. False teachers are peddlers. They are corrupt. They prey on others for filthy gain, Paul says. And what was attacking the Corinthian church all those years ago was now seeping into the Ephesian church. So Paul wants Timothy to know the seriousness of the charge that is laid before him. So how does he do that? By reminding Timothy that he, his calling and ministry are under the watchful eye of God. Look at the rest of verse 1. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. What Paul is doing here is he is setting a precursor to the imperatives that he is about to give Timothy. And that precursor is essentially this. Timothy, you are battle-worn. You are weary. I get it. You have enemies of the gospel coming from every side. But remain faithful. The word of God is sufficient for all life and godliness. So I charge you, under the watchful eye of God and the great judge Jesus who will judge all the living and dead, and who will one day come again and establish his kingdom on earth. Do you feel the weight of the charge? As a pastor, elder, a preacher, do you understand the weight that you carry? The truth of the gospel is at stake. Faithfulness to the gospel is at stake. The eternity of souls is at stake. And we must understand the call that we are stepping into. It is a weighty call that comes with a weighty charge. I believe it is why James says in James chapter 3 and verse 1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And too many false teachers are playing fast and loose with the gospel, leading many astray. There are some 25 commands given to Timothy in this second letter. Nine of those are found in verses 2 through 5. And we're going to look at these five. In verse 2, he says, preach the word. Not look at cultural trends, not figure out the best marketing techniques. It is a straightforward imperative. Preach the word. Why? As the writer of Hebrews states in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word for living means having vital power in itself and exerting the same upon the soul. 
The word used for active means effectual, powerful. It is God's word that brings life to those who are saved, and it brings death to those who are perishing. As Paul states to that Corinthian church in his first letter, chapter 1, verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Elders, fellow preachers, be a man of the book. Don't look to the culture to appease it. It will swallow your convictions and will still thirst for more. Preach the word. I plead with men all the time who are called to the pulpit, if your focus is anything but the word of God, get out of the pulpit. I stand with Stephen J. Lawson who once stated, give us men who know the truth and preach the whole counsel of God, not just what makes you feel good. This is why the church preaches through books of the Bible. It's why Pastor Darren, week after week, verse by verse, we're walking through the Gospel of Matthew. Sequential biblical exposition is God-honoring biblical preaching. It forces the preacher to deal with every verse. Paul, when speaking to the Ephesian elders, stated as much in Acts chapter 20 and verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pastor, preacher, elder, never approach the pulpit unprepared. Spend the time in the text. Let the text work on your heart. Let the text convict you. And then stand humbly before the pulpit, before God, and before his church to declare the truths that are found. Imperative number two. Be ready in season and out of season. The Greek carries the ideas of urgency, preparedness, and readiness. It can be used of a soldier preparing to go into battle or a guard who is on the alert for any surprise attack. This carries significant implications for Timothy. The church is under immense persecution, as I stated, and he's dealing with false teachers within Ephesus, and Paul names them in this letter. And as the under-shepherd of the Ephesian flock, Timothy must be ready to defend them from ravenous wolves seeking to devour them with false doctrine. This also carries significant implications for us as preachers and pastors and elders in a few ways. First, your life away from the pulpit needs to reflect the qualifications found in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Second, do you have men holding you accountable? Church, I want you to know that there are multiple men in this church who watch your pastor's life and doctrine, who watch your elders' lives and doctrine, who watch my life and doctrine. And as a church, that should give you great comfort to know that we hold one another accountable to the truths of God's word. Third, are you willing to call out false doctrine even when it is widely unpopular? Are you ready and willing to take the blows that will come your way from the culture, your flesh, and the demonic forces? 
For you see, the spiritual battle is real. It's not overstated. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, in speaking of salvation, Paul reminds the Ephesian church who they were before they came into Christ. And he says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, following this world, following the culture, following the prince, the power of the air, Satan, following the desires and lusts of your own flesh. Brothers who share this gift, we are called to preach a living message to dead men. And that's going to come with some pushback. But let us not forget that we preach a living message to equip the saints of God as well. This imperative to be ready in season and out of season carries not just implications for Timothy and for elders and preachers and pastors. Church, it carries implications for you as well. We need to be equipped with God's word and be obedient to it. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. This book, God's living, active word, equips you with the whole armor of God. Be ready, church, in season, out of season, with his word. Be ready for all that comes your way in life. Paul then continues these imperatives by giving two negative commands and one positive command. Imperative number three, reprove. But I want you to look at the text and the structure that Paul uses here. He says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience in teaching. So, with complete patience in teaching are attached to these last three imperatives. So, reprove with complete patience in teaching. A better rendering of this text could be complete patience and doctrine. Reprove means to find fault with, correct by word, to reprehend severely, chide, admonish. This carries the idea of correcting misbehavior or false doctrine. But Timothy, do so with complete patience and doctrine. Paul is telling Timothy that when he is reproving someone, correcting someone who is sinning, he is to do so patiently and with the word of God. He is not to exercise an authority that is not in the scriptures. To do so would place an unnecessary burden on the fellow brother or sister that they are correcting. Preachers need to be cognizant of the authority given to them by God through the pages of scripture. 
The second negative imperative, rebuke with complete patience and doctrine. Rebuke is closely tied uh, with reprove. And the Greek for rebuke carries the idea of absoluteness. It is to tax with fault, to rate, chide, censor severely. It deals with the motives of the one being rebuked. It is a firm action against sin and false doctrine because, as Paul stated earlier in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 and the first half of verse 17, he says, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. It's a poison. False doctrine is a cancer in the church, Timothy. Censor it severely, but do so with complete patience and biblically. It is important to make a comment here about reproving and rebuking. The intention here is not to be right. The end goal is always reconciliation with God and the relationships that were damaged because of the one sin that was being dealt with. Reconciliation of the individual to God. Reconciliation of the individual to the relationships that he or she has broken. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, Jesus says as much. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. You have reconciled your brother. You brought your brother back into the fold. You have turned his eyes from his sin, and he is now pursuing righteousness yet again. Reconciliation is the goal. The fifth and positive imperative that Paul gives Timothy, exhort with complete patience and doctrine. This command carries the idea of encouragement. Coming alongside the fellow brother or sister and letting them know that you are there to walk with them, to come alongside them, to be a godly friend to them, to let them know that you love them deeply. And you may be sitting there thinking, this is all well and good, Rich, but this text is more for pastors and elders and preachers, to which I would say, in part, you are correct. But it's also for you as a church. The implication is that you pray for the men who stand behind this pulpit, that they would hold fast to the commands given to us by the word of God, and that strong men would surround us who watch our life and our doctrine closely. Dr. John MacArthur states, quote, the role of the preacher in Christ's church is vital, and God has ordained that his people be taught and shepherded by spirit-gifted, spirit-led, and spirit-empowered men. The spiritual life and faithfulness of a congregation all, always is closely related to the spiritual life and faithfulness of its pastor, end quote. Isn't that what Pastor Darren just stated last week to us? Pray for him. Pray for his wife. Pray for his children. Pray for your elders, their wives, their families. Pray for the men who are called to preach and to teach. Pray for their families. That our life and doctrine would be sound and that we would approach our call humbly. So why all these imperatives? 
Why does Timothy need to preach the word to be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all patience and doctrine? Why this serious charge? Leads me to point number two, the sure reason. The sure reason. Found in verses three through five. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. In verses three through four, Paul says that a time is coming when people will do four things not endure sound teaching, accumulate teachers to suit their own passions or lusts, turn their ears from truth, and will wander off into myths. Notice the language that Paul uses here. There is intentionality throughout the text. And let's take a look at each of these four. Number one, for a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. There is something absolutely devastating in this text. Did you catch it? It would be easy to miss. For Paul is implying that these people will surely turn away who once endured or tolerated sound doctrine for a time. These are people in the church. They tolerated the sound doctrine but now persecution has come and they're turning away. Devastating to a pastor, to a church, to the soul turning away. But Christian, this shouldn't surprise us. Jesus warned us that these people would be in our midst. In telling the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus states in verses five through six, other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. And he goes on to explain this section of the parable later in verses 20 through 21, where Jesus states, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately, he falls away. The church in Ephesus was under immense persecution at the time of Paul's writing. And what Paul was stating to Timothy, and by way of implication to us, that people will appear to believe when it is easy to do so. But that masquerade will melt away once hardships or persecutions come. These are not true believers. These are false converts. And God shows us the state of these types of individuals in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19. I want you to know I'm not making this up. This is why I'm pointing you to the text. This is God's word, not my word. This is God's word. They went out from us, but they are not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. When Paul states that people will not endure sound teaching, the Greek there refers to not holding up under adversity. It can also be translated not tolerate 
They won't tolerate healthy doctrine. Church, persecutions are coming. It's already around us. It's not just a Middle East thing, not just a China thing. It's in Canada. There are churches within the United States of America that are in courts fighting for their freedoms to meet and congregate together right now. Persecutions are coming. And when those persecutions come, many will turn away from the faith because it's going to cost you something to believe. And you will turn from unhealth or you will turn from healthy doctrine and turn to unhealthy doctrine. And the ironic thing is, healthy doctrine is exactly what is needed in the midst of those persecutions. When a prominent Christian figure falls and it's someone you respect, what happens to your faith? Do you have a category for that? Many of you know what occurred with Ravi Zacharias, the devastation of his life and what occurred. I sat with a young man in this church after service one Sunday, and almost in tears, he talked about how his faith was rocked because of the secret life that Ravi Zacharias led. And I'm not going to stand up here behind this pulpit and talk about what it was. You can find out for yourself. But he was rocked to the core, to the point where he questioned his faith. When that occurs, you have a category for that, church? When the sudden death of a loved one hits you and you can't do anything but breathe, do you have a category for that? When that prominent theological influence in your life begins teaching things contrary to the gospel, do you have a category for that? Or do you get sucked into the fallacy that they themselves have been sucked into? Healthy doctrine matters. It is why I was so appreciative of the songs that we sang this morning. Full of healthy doctrine for the church. Truth for the church that we sang at the top of our lungs to God. Let me ask you this. How do you know that I'm not standing up here preaching heresy to you? Know your Bibles. Doctrine matters. Be like the church in Berea in Acts chapter 17, where Paul was standing there preaching the word of God. And what did the people of Berea do? Search the scriptures to see if what Paul was teaching was indeed truth. It's the apostle Paul. What do you mean you searched the scriptures to see if what he was teaching was true? If the apostle Paul needs that kind of accountability, how much more do the men behind this pulpit need that accountability? Search the scriptures. Know your Bibles. Healthy doctrine matters. And from where does this knowledge come? Indeed, in your personal time with God's word, absolutely. But also through the church. I found it fitting that Rick read the text that he did this morning for the pastoral prayer. It's in my notes. Ephesians chapter four, verses 11 through 16. Listen to the gifts that were given to you, church. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry 
for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Did you hear that? Your pastor, your elders, your preachers, teachers, gifts to you. Why? Because they are called to equip you for the work of ministry that God has called you into. And no doubt in my mind, some of you came in this morning, saw that Pastor Darren wasn't preaching today, and went, oh, here we go. Here we go. And you moaned within yourselves. I love my pastor too. The men that step behind this pulpit are gifts to you, church. Do you know how deep the preaching bench is here at FBC Wheeling? Unreal. The number of men who are gifted and called to preach the word of God. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Darren talked about how if he was ever hauled off to church, he knows men will step up and continue to preach in God's word. Yes, they will. Yes, they will. They are a gift to you, church. We are blessed with many gifted men of God who stand up here unashamed of the gospel and will preach it and teach it to equip you with sound doctrine that you can then turn around and do the work of ministry that God has called you to. This isn't just, this isn't just a once a week type of thing where you check the box. You have a calling. Every believer has a gift that God has given them to exercise within the body of Christ. Our gift happens to be the equipping of the saints. Not a better gift, but your gift, our gift to you. Does it make us any better than you? Does it make us any more right than you? But we are called to exercise our gift to equip you for the work of ministry. A warning here, church. Beware of the hip church with the fancy lights, the emotionally charged songs, and the slick speech coming from a cool pastor. For their concert-style show is an overcompensation for the lack of knowledge and sound doctrine behind their pulpit. Overcompensation for what they lack in preparation behind the pulpit. Speaking on verse three, the great reformer John Calvin stated, quote, from the very depravity of men, he shows how careful pastors ought to be. For soon shall the gospel be extinguished and perish from the remembrance of men if godly teachers do not labor with all their might to defend it, end quote. 
these hip pastors. As I stated earlier, playing fast and loose with God's holy word. Trying to twist it to fit their narratives and God will have nothing of it. Their means leads to destruction. The words no longer be children that Paul uses in Ephesians verse four, chapter 4, verse 14 is metaphorical. And it means untaught, unskilled. When you are taught and skilled in sound doctrine, you will be able to spot the fraudulent, sly, deceitful schemes of unbiblical teachers. Church, in case you didn't know, healthy doctrine matters. Not only will these people in the church not endorse sound teaching, second, verse three continues, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passion. Bible scholar Marvin R. Vincent wrote, quote, if people desire a calf to worship, a ministerial calf maker is readily found, end quote. If they can't find a teacher to give them what they want to fulfill their own worldly lusts, from their own congregation will come a teacher to give them exactly what they desire. They will be found. Timothy, are your people in your congregation? Are there people in your congregation that will leave your church? Absolutely. Will they seek out false teachers to satisfy their lusts, Timothy? Absolutely. You see, church, these are people who want God's blessings. They don't want to talk about sin. They don't want to talk about repentance. They don't want anything that God truly has to offer them. They want all that the world has to offer. And they will find false teachers to give them the messages that they so desire. And these false teachers are all over the internet. But let me build upon something Pastor talked about last week. I'm probably not going to make a whole lot of friends here. But I'm not accountable to you in that regard. I'm accountable to God to protect the flock of God, to come alongside men to preach truth. And I pray that the Holy Spirit brings conviction that leads to repentance in this space. I need to address any false converts that might be in this room. Joel Osteen isn't going to weep with you when your loved one dies. False teacher. Stephen Furtick isn't going to walk alongside of you when a major life decision is before you and you need counsel. False teacher. T.D. Jakes isn't going to visit you in the hospital when you are sick. False teacher. Their congregations are not going to come alongside your family when you lose your job and you're unsure of where the next meal is going to come. Pastor Darren will be there. Gretchen will be there. Your elders will be there. Their wives will be there. This church will be there. I have seen it and experienced it firsthand. They love you deeply. Stay away from false teachers who deliver nothing more than unhealthy doctrine that leads to hell. There are churches in the Ohio Valley who have leaders that desire nothing more than to grow an empire. They have little to no concern for your soul. Don't seek these men out. 
The pathway they are forging is a wide one that many are following to hell. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would convict them, turn their eyes to Christ, and that they would become men of the book. That's my desire. And I pray to God that he makes it so. These false converts will not only, they won't, uh, not only will they not uh, tolerate healthy doctrine, not only will they just accumulate teachers to suit their own lusts, third, they will turn away from listening to the truth. The Greek renders this as a deliberate action. Their desire will only be for the lusts of their flesh. Truth is no longer an option for them. They will not tolerate healthy doctrine. They will accumulate teachers to suit their lusts and they will turn away from the truth. And then lastly, they will wander off into myths. The Greek shows this as a passive action. It is a natural downfall because they have completely shut themselves off to truth. And now they have wandered off into myths. The Greek word for myth means fable, a falsehood. It is exactly like Paul mentioned in his letter to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And in verse 25, he concludes this way, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So, what is Timothy to do in the midst of members of his congregation leaving? And what are we to do? Well, verse 5 shows us. As sure as they will leave, the pastor, the elder, the preacher, the teacher needs to maintain a life and posture that is honoring to God. Paul gives the final four of the nine imperatives in these few verses. Number one, always be sober-minded, level-headed. Timothy, keep your head about you. Elder, preacher, teacher, be unwavering in the truth. Stand on the foundations of God's word. Be sober-minded. Number two, endure suffering. This can literally be translated, suffer evil. Endure the sufferings that the church is going to face. Not if. When that happens, you're going to want a level-headed pastor. You're going to want them to endure suffering. Third, do the work of an evangelist. Anytime the word uh, talks about evangelist, it's a specific office or a specific ministry. But Paul was stating that Timothy is to preach the gospel to non-Christians. And guess what, church? If you're a believer, so are you. Number one command for a Christian is to preach the gospel. And then he says, fulfill your ministry, meaning giving full measure or bringing to completion. It carries the ideas of eagerness and wholeheartedness. Fulfill your ministry, Timothy. Complete it eagerly as you are level-headed, as you endure suffering, as you are preaching the gospel to dead men. Do it with eagerness. Do it with wholeheartedness. Well, not only do we see the serious charge, and not only do we see the sure reason, lastly, we see the secure assurance. The secure assurance is point number three, found in verses six through eight. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. 
I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul equates his life and work and ministry as being poured out as a drink offering. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, the drink offering was the last offering that followed the burnt in the grain offerings. Paul knows that his life is coming to an end, and it's the final offering that he is making to God. Church history tells us that Paul did indeed die a martyrdom death for his faith. And do you feel the passion that Paul has in these words? It is believed by many scholars that 2 Timothy was the very last letter that Paul wrote. He's on his deathbed, if you will, in a Roman prison, writing to a young protege in the ministry in Ephesus, desiring that he knows with his dying breath that he preaches the word of God, that he handles it rightly, that he remains sober-minded, that he endures suffering, that he does the work of an evangelist, with all of his heart. The great apostle Paul, with his dying breath, you get to see where his heart lies. You feel the passion and the deep love he has for the church and the life to come. And in case you thought you were getting away scot-free without a sermon quoting Spurgeon, you are mistaken. Charles Spurgeon, on this verse, stated this, quote, so near so very near the change. His removal from this to another world, and so very conscious of it. Yet Paul looked back with calm satisfaction. He looked forward with sweet assurance, and he looked round with deepest interest on the mission that had engaged his life, end quote. Can that be said of your life? Will the banner over your life be one that declares sacrifice, a fighting spirit for the gospel, endurance to finish the, the race of life, and a reliance on the strength of Christ in your weakness to keep the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints? And if you are sitting there and you are unsure of this message, maybe it sounds a little weird to you. Let me help you out a little bit to the unbelieving, to the false converts that are sitting in the room. Turn to Christ. I'm not here to give a fancy speech and to deliver some encouraging oratory that makes me look awesome. That's not the point of preaching. The point of preaching is to reiterate what's already declared in God's word. That Jesus Christ lived, died, was buried, and rose again, ascended into heaven for you. He bore the wrath of God for you in your place. That you don't have to carry around the guilt of that sin brings. That you don't have to be walking on the road that leads to destruction and to hell that many are on. Repent, turn from your sin, and turn to Christ. Fix your eyes on Christ. 
Look full in his wonderful face. He is your Savior. And he's the only way that you will see God after you breathe your last year. So let me ask you this. When you breathe your last here, your first breath is going to be taken somewhere after you die. Will you breathe in the glories of heaven? Or will you breathe in sulfur, ashes, immense heat from the fires of hell? Where will you breathe your first after you breathe your last here? Healthy doctrine matters. Church, the time has come for strong men to stand behind pulpits to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified and to do it unashamed. And it is your call, church, to be in prayer over those men to be on your knees before God for those men. Well, I hope that I was clear and concise in my message. It is the desire of my heart that you would know Christ as your Savior. Don't be fooled. You may have been coming here for years and you think that you're in right standing with God just because you attend church, but you have zero desire for his word. You have no relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be fooled. Your good's not gonna outweigh your bad. Listen, it's not gonna outweigh your bad. The work of Christ on the cross on your behalf is what satisfies don't look to the celebrity pastor. Don't look to anyone else for a validation of your faith. Your faith was validated when Jesus said, it is finished. You were validated then for all of those who call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Let us pray.